You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Amen. Let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. would love for you to follow along in your Bible, so if you didn't bring one in or have an app on your phone, I would ask you to grab one of those Bibles in the seats in front of you. You can find Mark, chapter 7, on page 842. What we do here at Ascend is preach through God's infallible, inspired, inerrant word. That's where the authority lies. It is not in the authority of my exposition. It is in the authority of the degree to which that matches the truth of God's word. So we want you to see God's word. We want you to follow along. We want you to hide it in your heart. And more importantly, we want you to live it as you live forward. Let me read Mark chapter 7. Hopefully you'll see in these 13 verses the topic that we will be discussing. But let me read for it to you and then we will introduce it. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, that is Jesus, with some of the scribes who had been coming from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees And the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles your mother or father must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. Thus, making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. The topic that this passage introduces to us is a topic that in my own life elicits PTS. Now, if you're familiar with that acronym, you know that I'm leaving off a letter. PTS is post-traumatic stress. It means that some traumatic experience in your life was so significant that when you experience either thoughts or words or actions that somehow recall those events, it triggers something in you that is significant, that influences you, that threatens to overwhelm you. I'll just say that I left off the D because... As we look at those types of diagnoses, the whole concept of disorder is this. This is who I am, and there's nothing I can do to change it. The whole concept with a diagnosis of a disorder 
is that I do not have any reason why I shouldn't act this way. Or, said another way, I cannot act in a way that I am supposed to. I think the New Testament is on my side when I say this, is that no matter horrific our circumstances, and there are some, no matter how real post-traumatic stress is in our lives, the gospel gives us everything that we need to be able to respond to those triggers in a way that honors Christ. And it could take years. It could take counseling. It can be most difficult in our lives, but if we are followers of Jesus Christ, we are not labeled with an identity. We are not saddled with a condition that keeps us from being able to respond in a way that honors Christ. But when it comes to tradition in my own life, especially religious tradition, I have a very painful past. I have a past that influences reactions when those triggers happen in my life. And I'm sure some of you do as well. The Bible has some pretty harsh words for those who live according to religious tradition that eclipses what God says is most important. And that's what this passage is driving at. It is not saying we cannot have traditions. It is not saying we can't establish one hour and a half every Sunday that we sing, that we pray, that we preach by way of tradition that is not prescribed in Scripture, Jesus is not saying you can't have that. What he's saying is, is that if you elevate those traditions to a place where the sun, S-O-N, is eclipsed, then there is a problem with that, and the implications are tragic. That's why I've entitled this to see the smoke screens of tradition. What is a smoke screen? A smoke screen is something that draws your attention to it when the important thing is going on somewhere else. If you've studied American history, you have heard stories, and I love American history, especially the, 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 the wars of American history. And there are so many examples where on a battlefield, an army has been able to, to move without the enemy seeing them because of the smoke that is on the battlefield. There's been stories of planes that have been able to rush to safety out of the cover of clouds. There have been ships that have been able to maneuver without the enemy seeing it because of the smoke coming off of damaged ships. It's not just military, though. We've all seen experiences of journalists or politicians who have used smoke screens, haven't we? where they have published an article or passed legislation that draws our attention when the hidden agenda is somewhere else. Study the world, study government, study authorities, and you see that there are plenty of authorities who provide for their constituents in such a way to distract from their weaknesses or potential threats to their authority. Beloved, that's what Jesus is exposing in these words, is that there is a sense in which religious tradition, no matter how well-intended, no matter how uh, seemingly neutral it is, if it eclipses the S-O-N, there are tragic implications. That's the big idea I hope you can see in your notes. The celestial body of tradition can easily eclipse the S-O-N with tragic implications. Three points that are unpacked in these 13 verses, beginning with this. See the proper starting point. 
see the proper starting point. We, we all have traditions in our lives, and I'll reference that throughout this sermon, but when it comes to traditions, family, religion, what have you, there is an important starting point. Now, it says in verse 1, the Pharisees had gathered to him with some of the scribes. These are the religious leaders of Israel during Jesus' day. We haven't seen a whole lot of these religious leaders since Mark chapter 3. In fact, would you turn back there? In Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 22, we see that the scribes came down from Jerusalem. So let's recalibrate because it's been over three chapters since we've been reminded of who these individuals are. The first category are the Pharisees. These are religious leaders who are so committed to the law of Moses, so committed to Torah, that they are, they are so righteous in the eyes of the people of Israel. They are highly respected. They are highly disciplined. They look really, really good on the outside. Then there are the scribes in Mark chapter 3 and in our text this morning. These are the experts, not only on what the law says, but listen to this, what the law means. Beloved, that second part is what theology is. That's a word that usually makes eyes gloss over. Theology is simply what the facts of the Bible mean. And so these scribes are experts not only on the facts of the Bible, but also what it means. That's why in Matthew chapter 2, when Herod heard from the Magi that they came to see he who was born king of the Jews, he called the scribes. Okay, here are facts, but I want to know what they actually mean. And the fact that they come from Jerusalem is actually an identification of this being an official contingent from the capital city. They are representatives of the official theologians of all of Israel. That's why in Mark chapter 3, it's such a significant passage. The religious elite from Jerusalem had heard all about this man, Jesus. They had heard accounts of miracles. They came and actually saw it for themselves. And so they were given the opportunity to pronounce publicly who they thought Jesus was and what power he was using to do all of these things. And in that strategic moment, those scribes, as official representatives of the religion of the Jews, declared that Jesus was a representative of Satan. That instead of acting in the power of the Holy Spirit, he was acting in the power of the enemy of God, Satan himself. That's an important hinge on which ethnic Israel shifts. You see, ethnic Israel throughout most of Scripture was identified as the people of God. Ethnic Israel had a central central role in all of redemptive history. They were the chosen people. They were the people to whom the law was given. They were the promised ones that Messiah would come. The problem is, is that when Messiah came, they rejected him. In fact, isn't it interesting? Write this down. Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, Jesus proclaimed that the kingdom of God is where? It is at hand. It is in your presence. It is right here. You can actually see the king and the implementation and the inauguration of the kingdom. But after the rejection of the religious leaders in Mark chapter 3, Jesus teaches about the kingdom in parables. He preaches about the kingdom in terms that were secret to the masses and only revealed to his disciples. Why? Because the ethnic people of God formally rejected him. 
And so because of that hinge swing, we now see the new covenant beginning. We now see the new covenant that is going to be inaugurated where the people of God are no longer limited to an ethnicity. They are under the banner of Jesus Christ. That's why Galatians 3.28 will say, in Christ there is neither what? Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. Why? Because the defining factor of the family of God is the faith and obedience to Jesus Christ. This is where we find ourselves as we arrive at Mark chapter 7. Now, we see that the religious leaders have a concern. Verse 2, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. Raise your hand if you've ever eaten without washing your hands. Actually, don't do that. That's gross. (laughs) So, So listen, one of the benefits of COVID is that people wash their hands. In fact, I've learned that it's important to sing happy birthday to you, to me, to whomever. When you're washing your hands, that means that you're going to kill all those germies. So we look at this and we say, on the surface, it seems like this is a valid question. Ridiculous. The disciples are not washing your hands. Wash your hands. But thankfully, Mark provides something for us that is identified by what the ESV and some of your other translations provide with the parentheses. Do you see that in the text in verse 3? Mark is jumping out of the narrative to explain to the original audience something that is important. What this does is remind us that the original audience of the Gospel of Mark were Gentiles. They were very familiar with the Old Testament, but they needed help better understanding Jewish culture. And so Mark provides that for us in Mark chapter 3. The Pharisees and all the Jews, this is not just something the religious elite do, but this is the common Jews, they do not eat unless they wash their hands. But look at the next word, properly. It's not just happy birthday to you. This is a ceremonial cleansing. It says in verse 4 that when they come from the marketplace, why is this important? Because the marketplace is where business is conducted. This would not have just been Jews selling ceremonially clean materials. And so it just became a tradition that you go to the marketplace, you need to make sure that you go through this ceremonial washing to make sure that everything is clean. In fact, in verse 4, it says that not only do they wash their hands, they also wash their cups, their pots, their copper vessels, their dining couches. Those were the chairs that they used to recline at table. This is the approach that they took to this ceremonial washing. And what I want you to see is that this actually is the right starting place. Where do we usually start with our traditions? Well, let me illustrate it by going back to my baseball days. I'm looking out to see if anybody's rolling their eyes. Ah, oh, baseball. So I remember when I got into minor league baseball, I sat down and I talked with actually the guy who taught Pete Rose to hit. Some of you are going to have to Google who Pete Rose is. He's one of the greatest hitters of all time. His whole betting thing, that's a whole other story. We can talk about it over coffee. Pete Rose, one of the greatest hitters of all time. This guy taught Pete Rose how to hit. So so I'm standing with him in this uh, no-airflow tent in a batting cage, and I'm realizing that I'm listening to an apostle of hitting. And he's explaining to me, Jeff, think about all of the different stances that go into batting. There's George Brett. That's pretty good. You guys remember that? It's George Bay, okay. Kevin Seitzer. <laughs> and if you watch the Royals, if you, if you watch 
Craig Burns, are you kidding me? You, you've got to tell me before you come. This is my dear friend from high school from Colorado. You can't do that to me, brother. I'm going to talk to you after the service. Okay, but all of these stances, I've almost derailed myself. But, but, but all these stances are efforts to get you to the place where all good hitters get. And that is when the ball comes across the plate, you're making contact in front in a similar fashion. That is important with hitting. And so what this hitting coach told me is, Jeff, do whatever you need to do to be comfortable so that you can get to the place you need to get to be a successful hitter. And so for me, I would un unvelcro my hitting my batting gloves and I would tap the outside corner of the plate and I would do this oh boy here it comes and I would rest my bat on my shoulder rock back and forth and then get ready and then here it comes baby and then I was ready but why did I take that approach because it was comfortable for me it is what worked for me so that I get could get to the place where I needed to get and beloved I think we do a lot of that when it comes to religious tradition we start with what is comfortable for me. What, what do I enjoy? What reminds me of my childhood? What gets me away from the memories of my childhood? And we start with the point of what is important to me. But what Jesus is revealing here and what the Jews are actually revealing is the important starting point with tradition is what will get me to be holy? What will get me to honor God above all else? You say, well, where do you see that in the text? We have to look at the whole of Scripture to get there. The whole of Scripture reveals that everything about Israel centered on one specific verse. Would you write down Leviticus 19.2? Leviticus 19.2 is the epicenter of Mosaic law. Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Holiness is purity. Holiness is separation. Holiness is uniqueness. And there is a God who is unique above all other powers, above all other religions, above all other people. God of Scripture is holy. And so God is saying, if you're going to be my people, you need to live in such a way that you reflect my holiness. That's what the whole law is about. And what the Lord said to Israel is, if you follow my commands, if the patterns of your life are holiness, you will be blessed. You will be in right standing with me. If you get out of that pattern, then guess what? You will be judged. And if you remember the history of Israel, they didn't have patterns of holiness, did they? Just read Isaiah. Read Jeremiah. Read Hosea. Read Ezekiel. And the prophets are constantly saying, listen, the patterns of your life as a nation, the patterns of your life as leaders are unholy, unholy, unholy. Recalibrate. Be holy as the Lord your God is holy. And finally, God said, that's enough. And he sent them into, into exile, into Assyria and Babylon. And when Israel was able to return to the promised land, the religious leaders realized, hey, we have been unholy. We must remain holy. And so what they did is they sent up fences. They set up fences that were, in their minds, far enough away from the cliff of unholiness so that they could have the favor of God. The only problem is they set up traditions and started worshiping the fences rather than the God that holiness is supposed to direct us to. 
So, beloved, what we see here is the beginning of the right steps. They understood that holiness is important, but the problem is, as Mark exposes and as Jesus will expose, that their holiness was actually focused on, verse 3, the tradition of the elders. And so, beloved, we start here when it comes to tradition. We understand that when it comes to tradition in our own lives, it must begin with a desire to be holy and must direct us to holiness. But that leads us to number two. We need to shun the powerful derailing. Shun, avoid the powerful derailing. Now, we've read the flow of the text, but let's, let's linger as though we were the original audience. Let's linger as though we were the crowd that was standing around Jesus watching this thing unfold. This allows us to be able to relate to the crowd. So when we see in verse 5 what happens, it, it kind of makes sense. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? It's a, it's a valid question for Jesus' day. Why doesn't this rabbi require traditions that are intended to protect holiness? When Jesus says in verse 6, you hypocrites, it seems unfair and unreasonable. But Mark actually reveals to us by the words that he uses in verse 5, there was something below the surface. It says the Pharisees and the scribes asked him. The word ask means to question with an implication of an underlying agenda. This is not just a genuine asking for information. This is asking with a hidden agenda. Listen, here, here's a quote that I'll ask the team to put up on the screen. The Lord is more than gracious to those who come to him to genuinely ask. Friends, this is the, the whole point of the book of Habakkuk. You have the prophet looking at the world around him and saying, okay, what I see with my eyes doesn't match what I thought that I knew about God. Anybody else can relate to that over the last 18 months? I mean, we were just going along as a Christian nation, quote, end quote. And all of a sudden, it just seems like the wheels have fallen off. The fact is that there are times in our lives when what we see with our eyes does not seem to match what we thought that we knew about God. And it is appropriate in those times to ask questions of God, but to do so with genuine searching for answers, his answers. And that's the second part of this quote. He's extremely gracious to those who have hearts ready to align with his answers. You know, sometimes his answers are not the answers we were looking for. Sometimes his answers are, listen, I will not answer the why or the when or the what, but I will always answer the who. As I mentioned, we had a memorial service for a 19-year-old who just passed away. Trust me, that, those, that family and those friends are asking a lot of why, what, how? And they will probably spend their lifetime not getting answers to those questions, but I can direct them to the who. That God himself is superintending this. That this is not lost on God, that he has 
an intention with this, that he will receive the glory. And what that does in answering that question is drive us back to God's character. God is good as he defines it. God is true as he defines it. God is gracious as he defines it. And what that does is it moves us off of our circumstances to focus vertically and get us to a place of worship. And sometimes it is hard. Sometimes it takes a long time. But God will always answer that question, the who. So he says to these religious elite, you hypocrites, because he sees that they have a hidden agenda. They are passionate about protecting their gracious, they're protecting their precious tradition. You know, one of the primary goals of tradition is control. Would you write that down? Think about that. Family traditions, political traditions, church traditions, one of the purposes and goals of those traditions is control. When it comes to family, we want to have traditions so that somehow the family will function as it always has. Somehow the family will function in a way that recalls and appreciates the memories of the past. Somehow the family will function in a way where it resists change. But beloved, listen to this. The gospel is about surrendering control. Would you write that down? Tradition is about establishing control, holding it tightly. The gospel is about surrendering control. And beloved, when we live in a tradition that eclipses the S-O-N, there is great potential for derailing. And that's what we see in the quote in verse 6 and 7 that goes back to Isaiah 29. Would you turn back there? Isaiah 29 is the verse that Jesus Sights. And as you're turning there, it's important for us to remember that when Jesus or any of the authors of the New Testament quote the Old Testament, they are doing so honoring the Old Testament context. They are honoring the context. They never quote the Old Testament, throwing away the context of the Old Testament, but what they're doing is they're shedding light on it. So in other words, the Old Testament was written in a dimly lit room. All the furniture was there. Many of them could see the outlines, but the details of which they did not fully comprehend. When Jesus came on the scene, when the New Testament was written, that provided the light that gave us all the details that we needed for the furniture, for the path, for the room of God's redemptive plan. So that's important for us that when we turn to Isaiah 29, we first consider what is the context of Isaiah. Well, Isaiah is an indictment on not only the nation of Israel, but also the religious leaders. In fact, Isaiah 28 contains woes against Jerusalem. Let me just pause and say that in the Bible, anytime there was a woe, you as a reader should woe. It means that God is fed up with disobedience and is ready to unleash judgment that should make the readers shudder and obey. The the woes are coming down on the religious leaders who are saying that they have it all together, that are saying that they they are leading according to the commandments of God. But if you look at Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 1, he calls them what they are. You are stubborn children, declares the Lord. You're carrying out a plan, but not mine. You're making an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add to sin. He's saying... 
that he sees beyond the surface. He sees the heart, and he is not deceived. In fact, at the beginning of chapter 29, he says this. He says, Yahweh will lay a siege against Jerusalem. I want to just pause right here and just say that some of you might not be familiar with that name, Yahweh. It is the four letters that are consonants in the Hebrew that describe the term I am. It is the name, the covenant name by which Israel knew their covenant-keeping God. It is the sacred name of the God of Israel. And let me also hasten to add, some of our traditions influence even the songs that we sing, don't they? Let me highlight this and say, do you remember the song that we sang about Jesus' name being above all names? Jesus is the name that saves. Let me just remind you by way of a seed plant that you can study later. Philippians chapter 2 is Paul's efforts to move past the the letters J-E-S-U-S to see the theology that is behind it. You know, when it says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, I don't think that it's specifically saying J-E-S-U-S. It's saying the theology that that name represents. There were plenty of Jews of Jesus' day who were named Jesus or Joshua. It isn't J-E-S-U-S that is the the name above all names. It is what that name represents. It is the, the theology of what Jesus accomplished. And because of his life, his death, and his resurrection, God the Father acknowledged that you are Yahweh. You are the God that is above all gods, that everyone is inferior to you. You are superior. And because of that, because of what that represents, you are worthy to be worshiped by all. You are the only one who saves. So when we say the name Jesus, when we sing about Jesus, may we look beyond just those letters to the theology that that represents. Yahweh, the God of the universe, the God above all gods, is going to lay siege against his beloved city, against Jerusalem. That is a place of judgment that it is hard for a parent to understand. That he would lay siege against his children in the very house where his spirit dwelled. That's what verses 1 through 4 explain in Isaiah 29. But then verses 5 through 8 gives a promise that Yahweh will himself deliver the city. And that's why there was such a crescendo of excitement during Jesus' day. That the branch that Isaiah 11 prophesied. The the Messiah of Isaiah 9, that the the, the one who would come in Isaiah 61, who would uh, pronounce this as the day of the Lord, that the Spirit would be upon, to produce miracles that no other human being had ever done, that they are starting to anticipate, maybe this is the day when Yahweh will deliver his city from the Romans, but their focus was horizontal. And in their efforts to manipulate God, God is not deceived. Listen to verse 13. The Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. See, what happens is when we get to Mark chapter 7, what Jesus is saying is that that was not a prophecy that is predicting the day where Jesus was. What he's saying is the same condition then is the same condition now. And that is you are looking one thing on the outside, but I see who you truly are. 
And there's a low-hanging fruit in this. I mean, I don't have to be a biologist or a medical professional to understand where the lips are, the heart is, right? I mean, have you ever seen lips that belong to a person that are here and then the heart is far from them? That would be a gross picture. But that's the imagery that, that Jesus is providing. That's the imagery that Isaiah is providing. And that is where your heart is, your lips truly are. Where your lips are, your heart truly is. And Jesus sees past the lips to see the heart. And he's doing so with you and me right now. What was being exposed? What was being exposed was that these religious leaders were leaving the commandment of God. Look at verse 8. You leave the commandment of God. The word leave means to no longer pay attention to previous beliefs. Friends, I think this is informative. Eyes up here. I think this is informative as we think about statistics that we've heard in the church today. Why is the young generation leaving the church? Why are they leaving beliefs that they once held so dear? And I think Jesus is exposing here what's going on in the American church. And that is this, is that I think what we have done is we have exalted tradition and religion as a smokescreen so that kids have been drawn to that rather than the substance, which is Christ. And so what we've done is we've elevated church services and we've elevated certain worship styles. We've elevated, you've got to do this, you can't do that, to the point where we aren't directing them to the purpose that all of that is intended to do. And it is point us to Christ. Beloved, this is the crossroads. Again, there's nothing wrong with tradition so long as the tradition magnifies Christ and doesn't eclipse him. And so I pray that everything that we do here as a church, whether it's small groups, whether it's kids' ministry, whether it's connected, whether it's even our hospitality and our cafe, the worship services that we plan, all have the end game of exalting Christ rather than clouding him. And so then this younger generation gets out there and they say, well, you know what? I see other clouds. I'll pursue that. And they haven't had the brilliance of Christ put on display. Let's course correct that here at Ascend and then influence the community around us. See, they leave the commandment of God and they hold to the tradition of man. That word hold is very important. It's, it's used a couple times in this passage. It means a refusal to let go of a commitment not open for discussion. Do you have any commitments in your life? where you would say, no, nope, not that, not going to address that. Sure you do. You have theology in your life that when it's presented, you say, no, 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 no not that. We, we've seen that in our church. When I have preached what the Bible says, God predestined those who would be saved before the foundation of the world, people hear that and they leave. Why? Because they might have not heard it taught well. They might have had painful experiences in the past, but they've elevated a, a theological position that they had to a place of tradition that as soon as they hear it, I'm gone, I'm out, not that. Not going to wrestle with that. Not going to engage with humility to walk through Scripture, have somebody guide me through what it actually means. Because I had somebody evangelize me for Calvin and not Christ in the past, which that should never be. But just because you've had pain in the past 
doesn't preclude you from the responsibility of wrestling, of studying with the Word of God. It's not just theology. How about church like worship music? We've had people leave our church because we don't sing hymns. We've had people leave our church because we don't sing their favorites. It's tradition. Elevating tradition to a place where it's eclipsing Christ are the songs that we sing, pointing us to Christ. Okay, can you give some grace? And we do sing hymns from time to time. Elevating tradition. There's also family tradition, aren't there? Family tradition like being at a certain place on a certain holiday that as young families develop can create fractures in families. For decades they have been close, but now because they didn't show up for Thanksgiving or they were at the in-laws for Christmas, now all of a sudden there's a rift in a relationship elevating tradition. You see, now it's starting to get personal, isn't it? You know, in the last year, the church in America has had a lot of this kind of traditional smokescreen revealed, hasn't it? Take COVID, for instance. Masks or not mask. Vaccine or not vaccine. Take social injustice. Take patriotism. How many of you have gotten more passionate about those topics than you have the gospel of Jesus Christ? Beloved, this is not just limited to the Pharisees and scribes of Jesus' day. It extends to all of us. And Jesus says, listen, if you are eclipsing me, you are a hypocrite. What is a hypocrite? It's one who pretends to be something he knows he is not. I hear this a lot. I'll hear people that come to our church and they'll say, I haven't been in church for a lot of years, Pastor. And I say, well, why is that? Answer number one, because the church is full of what? Hypocrites. I would submit to you, not the true church. Because if the true church is filled with individuals who know they are not authentic followers of Christ, but they continue to pretend to be that, then the church isn't doing its job. That's why we require membership at our church. If you're going to be part of our family, we say, hey, membership is the New Testament. You are submitting yourself to the authority of the elders. You're submitting yourselves to the philosophy of the New Testament to be about the one another's, to engage in discipleship relationships, to engage in serving the body of Christ, to committing your resources to the body of Christ so that we can engage in active one another's. That is the New Testament model. And membership is a formal commitment to that. So some of you are attending Ascend as family members, but you haven't committed. It's time time. What's holding you back? Is it a tradition? Is it a preference? Beloved, a hypocrite is someone who knows they are not something but pretend to be something else. I mentioned that tradition is an effort often to control, but let me give you something even more detailed that might step on some toes. Tradition is an effort to control the narrative of your life. Would you write that down? Let me explain what that means. Oftentimes we put up traditions in our lives. We put up convictions in our lives in an effort to control the narrative. That way when people see and read the story of your life, they think what you want them to think about you. 
That's what these religious leaders were doing. But listen, a Christ follower is controlled by the gospel and not a controller of the narrative. I think they put that up on the screen. Yes. Good job, team. A Christ follower lets the gospel control the narrative and doesn't attempt to control it themselves. And listen, you may have experienced pain in your life. My PTS, like if you, we were comparing stories, mine's nothing compared to yours. I get it. And you've figured out a way to deal with the pain by just sweeping it under the rug, by controlling it, by running away from it, by keeping it in that category of not that, not going to deal with it. And you think that you are living in a healthy way. The gospel says, no, 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 there's something so much better. To be able to deal with the root of bitterness that you have held for decades and actually extend forgiveness to someone who has pained you. To actually, even though you think there's no way a person can forgive you, to humble yourself and to repent and to offer yourself and open yourself to humility, to shame, to embarrassment. Beloved, the gospel says there's more health, there's more blessing to take that approach than you controlling the narrative. So many of you might be manipulating those who who have wronged you or maintain a worship comfort that does not expose you. Jesus has harsh words for that. He says, hypocrite. Jesus sees past the lips and he understands your heart is derailing. So, beloved, before we move on, let us heed the warning of Christ and shun these drastic and powerful derailings. Number three, shadow the principal focus. By principle, primary. What is the primary purpose of God's word? What is the primary purpose of religious traditions in our lives? Well, it's unpacked in this passage, and to shadow it means we need to follow it. In verse 10, he gives a very familiar commandment, not just to us, but especially to the audience of Jesus' day. He says in verse 10, Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles your father or mother must surely die. So why did Jesus go to this most elementary of commands that everybody would have known? There's a purpose behind this, and what he's revealing is the primary purpose of his commandments, the primary purpose of the law of the word. When we go back to the ancient context, in fact, you can go to the Middle East and you can see this on display even today. Parents are revered. They are respected by their children. They are honored by their children. But why? See, in the ancient context, what we understand is that moms and dads are involved in the creation of children. And if you have questions about that, go ask your parents. (laughs) But but, but the theology of that is the, the point and the purpose that Jesus is revealing is that To curse your parents is to curse God. To revile your parents is to revile God. That's why the the commandment involves the application at the end of verse 10, whoever reviles your father or mother must surely die. Why? Because they are representatives of God. And so if you revile and curse them, you're cursing God. Beloved, listen, that is the heart behind the commandment of God. Are you living in worshipful obedience of the God of the universe? In fact, we'll ask them to put this up on the screen. The principal purpose 
of the commandments of God and traditions built upon them is the worship or the honoring of God. That's it. All of the law, the Levitical law of chapter 13 and 14 of the skin diseases and the colors and all the sacrifices and do this with the bowels of the bull and do this with the entrails of the goat. All of that has as its principal purpose value and worship. But the principal purpose of the traditions of men is always something blessed. That's the illustration that Jesus gives in verse 11. But you say, so this is the commandment. They all would have nodded their heads and say, yes, we get that. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me. Now, what is he saying there? Look at verse 12. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. What this means is, is that father and mother have needs. Either maybe they need food on the table. They might need clothing. Or they might have something that you owe them from your childhood that it's taken a long time for you to repay. So the bottom line is, is that father and mother deserve something or need something. That's important. And remember the command, you honor your father and mother. But he said, you guys have developed this tradition that you can say something that you own is Corbin. Now, I'm so glad that they were Gentiles to whom Mark was writing. Because he explains what Corban is. It is given to God or it is an offering. And what they did is they conflated a command of Torah. That if you make a vow to God, you must keep it at all expenses and at all costs. And what they did is they had developed this tradition that I could say this money that I owe my parents or the money that my parents actually need, I'm setting that apart for God so I can't spend it on you. And then what would happen is, well, but I like this boat over here. Or I like this extra tunic to be more in the historical context. And so I don't have to give it to God, but I don't have to give it to my parents. And they were manipulating it by focusing on the form rather than the function. You know, we can do this. The the Terrell family has some traditions that are not prescribed in Scripture. My kids aren't in here this morning, so I can say this. But there are words that we as Terrells have told the girls that our Terrell family does not say. Words like fart. (laughs) Words like duh. Words like gosh. Words like heck. And every once in a while in a sermon, I'll just get lathered up. Maybe like I'm doing right now and I'm going off notes. And I'll drop one of those unmentionables for Terrells. And so then we get in the car, and you know what ends up happening is instead of them reflecting on the magnificent gospel truths that I preached, (laughs) they will say, Dad, you said, (laughs) now I have three options at that point. I can either say, I'm your dad, shut your mouth. (laughs) Or I can say, you know what, you're right, you can say whatever you want. Or I can live in the tension of form and function. Okay, this is what we say, but why? This is our commandment and our tradition, but why? And what Jesus is doing here is he's moving us beyond the form of tradition, beyond the form of commandments to understand the the heart behind it, to understand the function behind it. And how is that defined? Look at verse 13. You are thus making void the word of God. Verse 9 
You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. You are manipulating the form and missing the function. Beloved, at the end of the day, the law about fathers and mothers has as its ultimate function to worship and value God above everything. Do you value God above everything? I mentioned this yesterday in the memorial. Solomon writes Ecclesiastes, one of my favorite books of the Bible, and he goes through all of the distractions and the smoke screens that are offered by this, this world. And he says, I've tried them. They have not delivered. And he gets to the end and he says, the end of the matter is this, fear God. But the word fear does not mean to be anxious about God or to dread God. It actually means to value him so highly that you value him above all other pursuits. That's the gospel. And you may sit here and think that that's not possible. It is only by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so, beloved, that's the heart behind the law. It's the heart behind the commandments that as we see the character of God, as we see his loving grace extended in the gospel, we value him so highly that it is our privilege to do whatever he says. That it is our privilege to think the way that he thinks. That it is our privilege to lay aside what we want to do for the glory of Christ and to make his name famous. That is our privilege. That is our end game. And what had happened is the religious leaders forgot that. And they focused so much on their own desires, their own needs, that they manipulated the form and they missed completely the function. So, how do we practically live this out? Because maybe you're like me, and as you wrestle with this, you are convicted that you have some traditions in your life that do not have Christ as the end game, holiness as the starting point. You've elevated traditions and not there, not going there to a place where it is a smokescreen keeping you from gospel response. How do you practically live this out? You're going to have to come back next week.